Jim, can you hear us? Yes, I hear you fine. Thank you. All right. Uh, let me introduce Jim to our audience. You've been on Geopolitics and Empire uh, a couple of times. You're a former U.S. diplomat. Uh, I think you were the GOP Senate Foreign Policy Advisor, and I, I would say an all-around analyst uh, extraordinaire. Um, I thought we could start with uh, a recent interview you gave to Faultlines Radio on, on Sputnik, where you said that you're voting Trump essentially because you're afraid of what the other side will do. Um, I didn't vote this year, but I, I, I feel you. You know, what's the worst a Biden-Harris deep state victory could portend? Oh, well, where do we start? I mean, uh, look, Trump did not carry through with a lot of his promises from 2016, but at least he didn't start any new wars. He said he wanted to get out of the existing wars. He hasn't really done that. Hey, it's it's a pretty small bar to, to clear when you can say, thank goodness he didn't start any new wars, but at least we have that. Uh, I would not be so sure about that with Biden. If you look at the people he's likely to appoint to his administration, he makes uh, Trump's team look like a bunch of Mahatma Gandhis. I mean, Biden has been a drum beater for everyone. He's like a, a Democratic John McCain, if you look at his record as a senator and his vice president. So I'm worried about that. But I think the the, the bigger issues we have uh, right now in our country are more what you might call, you know, fundamental definition of who we are as a country. On the one hand, you have people, uh, let's just talk in broad uh, economic terms, who want to reopen the economy and start getting a paycheck again, because I think there's basically two classes of Americans right now. Those are getting paid and those that ain't. And uh, and then you've got uh, people who are, are, are want to have at least some, it seems, some kind of absolute guarantee of their health from this this evil virus, and they want to lock down the, the country uh uh, na nationwide and a national mask mandate and all that, and presumably at some point uh, nationally mandated vaccines. So I think that's one of the dividing lines. But the other one is, you might say, a big ma macro historical identity question that uh, do, what do you really think America is? Do you think it's a basically good country with some uh, with some flaws like all countries have? Or do you think it's basically an evil country that's built on racism and slavery and genocide and needs to be burned to the ground and built from the bottom up? And I think that's the kind of, uh, let's say, broad sense of, you know, when you hear people like uh, Obama and others saying, well, that's not who we are. Well, who is it we are? I mean, what what do you think America is? Who do you think Americans are? And I think that's largely what is really going on here. And that gets to where you get into the whole question of woke ideology, that uh, if Biden wins, and I don't know if he's going to or not, I think we will see... Um, an incredible ideological um, uh, tech tyranny imposed on the country in terms of what kind of information you can access, what you can say, what's going to get you banned from social media, and, and also what's going to get you fired from your job, what's going to deny you uh, financial services or utilities or maybe medical care if somebody decides that you don't you know, match up with uh, you know, uh, Ibrahim Kendi's idea of critical race theory. Or, or something of that sort. That, that's the kind of uh, soft totalitarianism, somebody like Rod Dreher has called it, that I think uh, would be part and parcel of an Obama administration, and there would be no turning back from that, that, uh, that part of what they would do during this next four years would be to uh, decisively uh, tilt the demographic character of America so that there never could be any coming back from that kind of... Uh, you know, rainbow fascist future that they have in store for us. That's that's my biggest fear, I would say. 
I would agree with you. And, you know, that's one of the reasons uh, I left. One of the many reasons I left the States, because I kind of foresaw this uh, trajectory coming. I know uh, Rico and myself have, have had YouTube videos deleted. My Facebook podcast page is currently restricted, so almost no one can see it. Uh, and yeah. I read I read daily. Um, there are YouTubers who, you know, one woman who had an account with Santander, you know, bank account. She received a letter and they canceled her account just for her political views. Another guy from HSBC, um, the guy who created the Twitter alternative Gab, uh, Andrew Torba, uh, Visa won't allow him or his wife to have debit or, or credit cards. There, there are people who have had their Uber uh, and Airbnb apps canceled. So it's, it's really frightening. And so are we at this genuine 18 kind of 60s moment? Because there are people that are saying it's existential, but we also see signs that there are special interests kind of trying to artificially fan the flames. You know, we've, hit, uh, we've heard about this uh, Soros financing, uh, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, uh, and other uh, elites. So it seems like, you know, is the problem, was it smaller than we're led to believe and they're kind of fanning the flames? Or how organic yeah, is this? I, thing? I, I think it's much bigger. I mean, and that's the other thing we have to understand. You know, one of the funny things that struck me about Trump's administration is he never really had effective control of the executive branch of government. You know, it's, 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 you might say it's normal political repression for the people who win an election and have control of the government to use the tools of the state and law enforcement to persecute their enemies. What kind of a goofy country do you win an election and then the winners of people are being persecuted by the, the uh, organs of government that theoretically are under the authority of the guy who won the election? Um, uh, you know, lock her up was a just a fantasy. That was never going to happen in 2016. Trust me, if Trump loses... He better get out of the country. Uh, he and his family had better get out of the country. They will be prosecuted. Anybody who's been connected with him will be prosecuted. Um, that Robert Rice uh, truth commission will be hard at work, uh, you know, putting the finger on people saying, you, 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 and you. And like you said, it, you'll, be, you'll lose banking services. You'll probably lose access to utilities. They say, well, I'll I just do everything in cash. Okay, what happens when we start moving to a cashless society like many, many countries are doing? Unless you're willing to go full, you know, Unabomber cabin in the woods somewhere where you don't have any relevance to anything anyway, you'll be forced to bend the knee, basically to provide, give lip service in, in a kind of a, a Soviet style where you must, you must uh, swear fealty to whatever the narrative is or else you will lose your privileges. Uh, and, and I think that's the future that will be almost unavoidable if this election goes uh, in Biden's direction. Hey, let's not make. I know, I know that's. I know that's pretty, pretty harrowing. But you know, hey, look, uh, you know, I'm an old guy. I can say whatever I want. Well, let's not make fun of the cabin in the woods. I was planning to go to the south of Mexico <laughs> and the jungles of Chiapas. Uh, you know, so. Um, so well, let's I, say I, I, I just got back uh, from Serbia a couple of weeks ago, so I might, I might be going back. Who knows? You know, it's. Uh, I haven't been back home to Sparta in, in 50 years, but uh, I suppose I could think about that as well. Yeah, I was considering going back to, to my other homeland of Croatia, but they're part of the EU and I don't like what the, the EU is, is doing yeah. and force, forcing Croatia to comply. But um, I, let's say Trump then then wins and we have an, he has a second term four more years. Yeah. Will that just be staving off the inevitable, you know, 2024 when, you know, maybe the Democrats will take power? What will happen in, then? In, in all likelihood um, that uh, that. I think that's the case. I don't see how Trumpism survives Trump. 
even if he wins another four years. And if he wins another four years, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, then he'll really go to work and he'll fire all these bad people he appointed and, and so on and so forth and keep all of his promises from 2016. I don't expect that. I expect four more years of drama, maybe fewer than four years of drama, but a lot of drama. He'll be just as embattled, if not more, uh, especially if he wins the electoral vote, but not the, co- the popular vote. We're going to see the accusations that he stole the election. And right now, I think what we're facing tonight is the likelihood, unless unless Trump loses Ohio or something like that, something truly fatal, there's a good chance he may try to claim victory tonight. Uh, and then uh, the other side will accuse him of trying to steal the election. Putin is behind him, blah, blah, blah. The red mirage, they call it the hashtag on Twitter. But then that's where you get the, the so-called blue shift where all the other votes that have been coming in like uh, the count, uh, the uh, congressional districts we saw in California in 2018, you know, like five or six of them were called Republican on election night. And then over the month that followed, they all flipped to the Democratic camp when they kept finding new ballots, it turns out. So I, I, I don't know. I think it, even if he wins, unless it's really big and, and it doesn't look like any win tonight will be really big, then I think they very well could steal it from him anyway. And uh, on, on that issue of, of civil unrest, you know, we've asked our previous guest about that. Um, I'm, I'm kind of having a, a feeling, uh, being a professor of history myself, uh, we, we had the 1789 moment, the French uh, Revolution, with, with this extremist, radical, politically violent Jacobin movement. Then we had the Russian Bolshevik Revolution in, in 1917. Uh, which you know we know what happened there, and then as well as in China, you know, 1949. Um, I, I'm kind of having some feelings that you know th- it might be happening in the U.S. something something yeah. like this. I hope I'm wrong, uh, but you know what what how how bad can things get in terms of you know a second civil war? Would it just be the next couple of days? You know, the, the same old group of BLM Antifa burning down cities, and then you know. National Guard comes in or, you know, how bad could things? Uh, yeah, I, I think if Trump does manage to win, the city is going to burn. I think that, that's axiomatic that what we saw earlier this year will go into hyperdrive. If Biden wins, we might see some, you know, celebratory looting in some cities or something. But it won't be as uh, as bad initially because let's remember, Antifa, like you said, Soros and other people, you know, how, how many fat corporations with, you know, rainbow flag logos and so forth are providing big bucks to uh, Black Lives Matter? How, you know, who else is funding Antifa that we don't know about? I think what we need to understand is that these guys are just the foot soldiers, that the real establishment is in the government itself, in the intel agencies, with all their friends in the IT community, in the, the finance community, in Hollywood, entertainment. And, uh, and also all the foundations and think tanks who are the same people that have been carrying out cover, color revolutions in country after country. And now it's our turn. And uh, in other words, it's, it's uh, in, in fact, I think there was a piece in Revolver that pointed out that not only is it the same methodology, methodology as we saw some in places like Ukraine, it's some of the same institutions, even some of the same people. That were involved in the regime change in Ukraine in 2014. So, um, and I don't think most Americans really have any idea about this stuff. Since, as you know, most Americans have very little uh, knowledge of the outside world at all, uh, much less what kind of activities our government tends to uh, conduct in, in some of these countries with, you know, the usual suspects in, uh, in concert with them. So I, I just since you mentioned color revolutions, I thought we could segue a bit into foreign policy, which you focus yeah. on 
uh, a lot. And then, you know, I did an interview with Dr. Paul Craig Roberts recently, uh, who was the assistant secretary of the treasury under Reagan. And, you know, basically he was discussing how, as you said, that this is a color revolution and coup come home uh, to roost. Uh, yeah. But now what we're seeing, you know, I, I was in Kazakhstan and, you know, I had students that were working with these, with an NGO in, in, in Kazakhstan that was yeah. financed by USAID, Open Society, National Endowment for Democracy. And the student actually showed me in Russian Cyrillic, you know, it said uh, she got the certificate for participating in the essay contest and <laughs> it was uh, certified by National Endowment for Democracy. So I was like, well, what's going on here in Kazakhstan? And then I find out they have this uh, revolutionary movement that, that's been going on called Wake Up Kazakhstan. And one of the leaders was uh, he, back 10 years ago, he did a training with National Endowment for Democracy. And so you, and so now we see in Belarus, um, these coup attempts called a revolution. We saw in Kyrgyzstan uh, recently as well. Uh, and then we have the Armenia-Azerbaijan war going on. I mean, does, is this the U.S., British U.S. empire? I don't know, you know, What's going on? Are they? Is this like the, they're? You know, a lot of people have been quick to pronounce the uh, unipolar world is dead, and we're now seeing the dawn of a multipolar world. Uh, I guess nobody's really told that to the unipower uh, that they still act as though they are the only real actor in the world, and they have this. Some somebody has compared it to the common turn. It's like the demon turn. All of these organizations uh, around the world that one way or another seem to have a what almost everywhere a, a thumb in every pie. And um, that, you know, regime change one way or the other, whether it's through armed aggression or through a color revolution, still seems to be the name of the game. Uh, the unipolar the uni power is, is, is finished. Then what explains uh, Belarus? How, you know, I, I, it seems to me that if you start with the notion that um, there's only one possible path forward for the human race, and that is, you know, this, 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 uh, this woke Borg uh, ideology that is centered in the uh, the ruling establishment in Washington, that no other power on the planet is legitimate unless it basically becomes a satellite of that power. And that, in my opinion, explains why countries like Russia, China, um, Iran, Venezuela, and a few others are being targeted, and they don't give up. I mean, look at look at uh, Syria. That you know, for for nine years. Uh, the United States and its various friends in the region have been trying to overthrow the Syrian government. It's pretty clear that's not going to happen through direct um, military means, but they can still manage to cause a ruckus and cause a lot of suffering there and a lot of sanctions, and a lot of people dying and suffering because, well, if we can't, if we can't take it off that piece off the chessboard, at least we can make sure it stays in turmoil and, and a mess that's good enough for the time being because we see what the options might be in the future at some point to force them to submit, which is really what it's all about. And uh, I think that um, Trump, you know, obviously Trump I, uh, at least sounded like he didn't want to go down that road uh, with regard to Iran, for example, when they, the Iranians shot down that unmanned drone a couple of years ago, uh, the talk was we were within, within 10 minutes of launching a strike on Iran and, only because Tucker Carlson personally called Trump and talked him out of it that he decided not to do it. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what the, the, the talk around Washington is. Um, but at least Trump did not want to take that last fatal step. I think Joe Biden is going to be simply a willing foot soldier in the hands of the 
the kind of people that have been messing up American policy for, for decades and that Trump ran against in 2016, but really couldn't subdue. So I think we're going to see a lot of a lot more meddling, a lot more. And, and of course, he signaled that Russia in particular is going to be you know, the great threat that we will double down on. So uh, I, I'm, I'm not real optimistic on that front. Maybe maybe a, a personal interest question from me. I'm, I'm Rico from the Netherlands in Europe. Um, and I was listening to your interview you did in April with Ravoji. And you said in that talk, you called NATO a control mechanism over Europe. <laughs> Now, in, in light of that, there's talk about European army. So could you reflect on, on the auto <laughs> autonomy or lack thereof of a European army? But also, it was not too long ago that Germany was asking or suggesting NATO play a role in, in domestic crowd control. I mean, there's riots all over the place. So Germany calls in NATO. Uh, I, I can imagine they would call in U European army, but <laughs> how would that work if uh, if, uh, if it's a control mechanism over Europe? Your, your, your thoughts? Well, you know, of course, my personal opinion, which means nothing, is that NATO should have gone out of business about five minutes after the Warsaw Pact did. Uh, that didn't happen. And uh, I can re recall even back in the middle of the 1990s, there was a lot of worry in Washington that uh, the Europeans would want to create their own viable uh, defense, defense force, defense establishment. Um, there, there's kind of a, a paradox here because you, you'll hear from Washington sometimes, well, the Europeans can't really be independent of NATO until they create their own defense capability, which then begs the question, defense against what? Defense against whom? Against the Russians? I mean, they obviously don't need it for that. That's that's a, that's a scarecrow. They probably do need it to control some of the, the migrant invasion that they've been undergoing. But since no government in Europe is really serious about that, except maybe Hungary and Poland, um, that you know, that's obviously not the purpose of, of a European force. I think in a way, it would be sort of an exercise in narcissism to say, we have a European force and therefore we don't need NATO. Okay, fine, if that's what it is. But I think uh, Trump's initially skeptical attitude toward NATO was hijacked by, I think, even people like Richard Grinnell, who you know claimed to be Trumpers, to really turn it simply back to the old American line of burden sharing. What it really is about is make NATO great again, make the Europeans pay for their own defense. Again, defense against whom, defense against what, but they, they've sidetracked the real question of what in the wide world of sports is NATO for anymore and why do we need it? They don't want to have that discussion. Right. And maybe to and by the way, by the way, if, if, if Biden does get, 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 does win, I think most of the European governments will be absolutely thrilled that he's won. Here's somebody saying we can talk to. Here's somebody. They will be lap dogs uh, at master's table in terms of a revitalization of a, the kind of NATO that they all agree upon. Uh, and I think will be even more active and, and frankly, more aggressive in, in Eastern Europe. I, I, I tend to look a lot at the, at the historical cycle and I feel like, you know, it's 2020 and I feel like it's the 1920s uh, and 30s uh, all over again. And we see things really heating up. You know, the, the U.S. is sending more uh, jets out into Alaska. Russia is, you know, working a lot in the Arctic. Uh, recently, mm -hmm. I think it was it was told that, you know, NATO or the U.S. were sending relocating troops to Eastern Europe, you know, bordering Russia. Um, the U.S. is uh, un with an unprecedented arms deal, I think, uh, with Taiwan. 
they're arming uh, Taiwan. And I feel there's there's a number of people that are saying, you know, it's 2020. And in the near term, uh, we're not going to see a hot war, maybe like things like Azerbaijan and Armenia, proxy wars. But by 2025, 20, closer to 2030, we may see uh, larger uh military conflicts what's well, your take you know, on the theory that there are cycles of these things historically and that you've had a big conflagration in europe pretty much every century or so since the 30 years war and uh the last big one we had was you know is receding into that century mark if you look at world war one to world war two is two rounds of the same uh european conflict uh it, yeah and and that may be the case um, there was a good piece, I think, written by Gil Doctorow uh, a, few, a couple of years ago, where he quoted from um, uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace about what, what's ca- what, would, what caused this war. And he was saying that it wasn't so much this or that political action by the, by the actors, but rather the acceptance by all concerned of the underlying logic that led to the war. And if you start with an, an attitude from Washington and our, and our various satellites that the only acceptable Russia is the one we had under, uh, under um, Yeltsin, which essentially was an American-controlled government, and that anything else is considered aggression against democracy and human rights, uh, that the internal logic of that policy either leads to keep pressing, 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 until they finally collapse and we can get a color revolution going in Moscow, or that pressure leads to some kind of an incident that escalates in a way that nobody expected. And I think that's a, a potential problem, not only true uh, with regard to uh, Russia, but also with China. And um, I, you know, I, 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 I suppose there are people in Washington who are mad enough to think that they could launch a nuclear war, launch a general war, even a non-nuclear war against Russia and uh, not blow up the planet. Uh, but I don't think that's too many of them. I think it's more likely they think if they just keep turning the screws, eventually the Russians will cry uncle and come crawling or they will collapse. And um, I don't think either of those things are going to happen. And so that means that some, you know, when the, what is it when the, uh, the uh, irresistible force meets the immovable object, uh, something's got to give. And, um, you know, I, I asked myself, l- let's suppose that's true. What can any of us do about that? If, if we were all sitting around in 1913 and we all knew exactly what was going to happen the following year, what could anybody have really done about it at that point? Not a whole lot. Uh, we would you stand on the, on the rooftop and say, hey, there's going to be a big war. Everybody stop. Well, it wouldn't have stopped anything. And um, And I don't see what puts the brakes on this kind of internal logic towards some great global conflagration. I mean, we're going to head to our cabin in the woods, you know? So um, with the few minutes we have remaining, what other, you know, issues that that have you been writing about, uh, talking about that are pressing uh, on your mind? That's pretty much it. I, I, I haven't really written all that much recently. I did do a presentation in Belgrade a couple of weeks ago on the question of does America have a future? And uh, my friend, Dr. Sergei Shrivkovich, uh, uh, sort of closed it out by relating a conversation he had with um, with uh, uh, Igor Shafarevich in Moscow in the 1990s. And he asked him, to, basically, does Russia have a future? 
And Shaffer Avery said something along the lines, well, as a mathematician, he wants precise quantities and sees where the, the equation goes. And if you ask the question that way, you know, he does not see how Russia has a future. On the other hand, as a Christian, he believes in the Holy Spirit, and therefore Russia's future is not only uh, possible, but inevitable. Um, I don't know if I have quite that level of faith when it comes to America, but I'm hoping against hope that there's some kind of a vitality left in the American ethnos that it can somehow avoid the fate that's being prepared for it. But it, if I, I'm kind of depressed by the thought that if Biden wins, once a revolutionary regime takes power, I look at the historical circumstances of the Russian Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, the Mexican Revolution, um, the French Revolution. Once a revolutionary regime is in power, the only one I have seen where they lost power because of popular resistance was in Spain. And that's only because Franco had good allies. Uh, in other words, I don't I don't see, in other words, if, if, if you asked earlier about civil war, I don't think we'll see something like 1861. But let's remember, Americans hate each other now a lot more than they did in 1861. That in terms of not even sharing the basic assumptions about not only what it means to be an American, but what it means to be human. Uh, what are the fundamental values of humanity? We are aliens from one another. We are enemies from one another. And, and if things do start to fall apart, it won't be like, you know, guys in blue and gray shooting at each other across the field. It'll be more like the, the Yugoslav civil wars or like the Spanish civil war or something like that. And my guess, it won't even be that, that we will simply see repression from uh, an increasingly powerful totalitarian state and that there won't be much resistance and what little there is sporadically will simply be crushed. I would just add a comment. Speaking of Russia, I, I read an interesting article from Access of Logic uh, website interviewing a Russian uh, veteran who was saying that, you know, this whole issue of the, the attack on Belarus and, and Kyrgyzstan and Armenia, Azerbaijan was yeah. essentially just attacked uh, on Russia to weaken Russia. More of the same, uh, as, you, as, you, as you've been saying. But it was interesting what the veteran, his conclusion saying that, I mean, it, it could succeed to, to weaken Russia economically, uh, politically militarily and he, he was saying that it was possible that russia could lose its its country but you know after we've seen napoleon's invasion and hitler's invasion russia's still still around so well and remember too what uh vladimir putin has said he said growing up on the main streets of leningrad if you know you're going to be in a fight and you can't avoid it you pick the time and the place and um, I suspect there are people in Moscow thinking along those lines, that if they think war is going to be an inevitable, um, I, I, don't, I don't relish the thought that our side may have a few surprises prepared for them. You know, you know, you know what is it? The truth is, is the first casualty of war. The second casualty is the plan. Everybody goes into war with a plan. But the trouble with the plan is they fail to take the enemy's vote into account because the enemy <laughs> generally doesn't want to cooperate with your plan. So it's um, I, 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 whatever is coming both domestically and uh, internationally, I don't think. All right. All right. Let's let's bring in uh, our next guest is here. Helen Boyniski. I'm not sure if you're familiar with each other. Both of you are often on RT uh, interview there and she <laughs> writes for RT. So um, she's logging in. Hey. <clears throat> Through the Can wonders of Zoom. <laughs> oh, whoops! I got I got on your uh, your other video. Let me get that out of here. 
Ah, your camera is claimed by another device, by, by another program. Okay. No, no, carry on. It's been smooth. It's been smooth sailing so far. So you know. Oh, good. It's 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 bound to to have a technical glitch sometime uh, at the night. So. Can oh. you see hear me? No. We can hear you. We can't we can, see. We can you. hear you. you can't fine. see me. Interesting. Let me see. Uh, oh crap. That's oh, not good. Stop. It says stop. Wait. It says stop video. Why can't? Hmm. Maybe you can try to uh, log out and come back in. Yeah. Let me let me try that. Hold on. Sorry about this. All right. And um, I guess any final thought, Jim, before you leave us? No, no, that's, not, that's all. I've got actually a couple other calls to make. So if you don't all mind, I'll, I'll all right. mail out. Thanks for being here. Right, thank you. Nice meeting you, Rico. Bye-bye. And, uh, and let's, uh, let's, let's hope for the best. Yeah, I'm going to get myself a cabin also. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care.